Take your Bible, and we want to pick up where we left off last time, talking about spiritual warfare. Now, in our last study, we were looking at Revelation chapter 12 as kind of a basic format to discuss this matter of spiritual warfare. A lot of interest in this subject uh, with the books that come out on it and with the seminars that are being held. There are spiritual warfare seminars being held all over the country. There are books being written ad infinitum ad nauseum on the subject. And there's an awful lot of discussion about this whole spiritual warfare issue. But we want to know what the Word of God has to say about it. And Revelation 12, as we noted in our last chapel together, discusses that. In Revelation 12, we learned what the participants are in spiritual warfare, namely Satan, the dragon, and then the fallen angels that have been dragged down with him by his tail, namely the demons, and then unredeemed people who become the pawns, the tools that Satan and his demons use. We noted that the targets in spiritual warfare are, first of all, Christ. We saw that in Revelation chapter 12, how that the dragon attacks the child who is Christ. We also noted that another target is Israel, that uh, Satan and the demons are after Israel. They want to destroy the Jews. We saw that with Hitler. They want to destroy the people of God because that will thwart the ultimate plan of God for Israel. We also noted that the targets of Satan and his demons are holy angels, that there's a warfare going on on a supernatural level. Michael and his angels are waging war with the dragon and his angels. And then lastly, the targets are believers. Satan and his demons come against Christians. And then we asked the question, what is the strategy? And we said that Satan and his demons attack believers in four basic ways. As individuals, they attack us through the issues of temptation. They attack families. They want to do everything they can to destroy the family. We looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which reminds married couples that they are not to separate from one another physically because that allows Satan to move in and devastate that relationship through temptation. They also attack leaders. We noted that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, be careful who you lift up in leadership uh, so that people in leadership aren't unduly tempted by Satan. And then finally, they attack the church to try to shred it and rip it and tear it up with false doctrine and sin and all of that. Now, we've kind of looked then at the participants in the battle. We've looked at the targets in the battle. We've looked at the strategy of the battle. Now, what I want to talk about this morning with you is how we react to that. I want to see if I can't give you an understanding of how this conflict works and how it affects us and how we are to respond to it. First of all, let me say there are some people who, who say that everything that happens in the Christian's experience that is negative is caused by demons. And these are the people who see demons in everything. I mean, absolutely everything. I read a book written by a man named Don Basham, B-A-S-H-A-M, about demons, in which he has an entire section on the demon of post-nasal drip. <laughs> Literally everything. <laughs> if your nose runs, it's the demon of post-nasal drip. And you've got to find someone who knows how to exercise the demon of post-nasal drip out. There is a formula for the demon of drip, and if you say it right, he has to leave and go cause somebody else's nose to run. 
And there are demons for every imaginable thing. Every time you sin, it's a demon. Every time something doesn't go right, it's a demon. There might be a, there, there are demons in the plumbing in your house. There is a demon that makes your roof leak. Everything is demons, 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 demons. Every time you sin, it's because there's some demon doing it. Every time some conflict comes into your life and your relationships, it's the demon that's trying to violate those relationships and mess you up. Every time you fall prey uh, to some misunderstanding of truth, it's the demon of confusion. Uh, it's the demon of laziness. It's the demon of sleep that won't let you get up and do your homework like you're supposed to and attend class. It's the demon of confusion that made you misunderstand the question. It's all demons everywhere you turn. And that is a that is a, a rather prominent uh, viewpoint among many people, particularly in the charismatic movement, some of the fringe elements of it. Demons do everything. But that is not what the Bible teaches. Not at all. In fact, Paul says in Romans seven, I have a problem and my problem isn't demons. My problem is the flesh, my unredeemed humanness. He says, I long to do the things that are right. I want to obey the law of God. I delight in the law of God. But there's something in me warring. A demon? No. My flesh. My unredeemed human flesh. In fact, Satan, it says in 2 Corinthians, is disguised as an angel of light. And his demons are ministers of light. They spend most of their time operating in false religion. I mean, demons don't have to work in bars and saloons and dirty movies and prostitution houses and, you know, crooked businesses. The, the flesh takes care of that. Demons work in the area of false religion, propagating lies, misrepresentations, and so forth. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, if you want to get your life together, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. If you'll deal with the flesh, you'll be dealing with the sin issues in your life. In Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul makes it very, very clear. He says this. Here's his list. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, wild parties, and things like these I warn you about. Now... Many people today would say, yeah, that's the demon of uh, immorality, the demon of sex, the demon of impurity, the demon of sensuality, the demon of sorcery, the demon of faction, the demon of drunkenness. What does Paul say? These are the deeds of the flesh. You don't need demons for that. So it, it, we cannot blame everything that goes on in our life on demons. In fact... During the Millennial Kingdom, according to the book of Revelation, chapter 20, Satan will be bound and thus his entire operation to a great degree will be brought to a halt during the thousand-year Millennial Kingdom. When Christ is reigning on the earth and people are living in the world, Satan will be bound for a thousand years and yet Christ will still have to rule with a rod of iron because unredeemed flesh is still wicked. Not only that, at the end of the thousand years, even without Satan and his whole orchestration going on, there will be a worldwide rebellion in which the world will gather itself together to fight against Jesus Christ. That will happen without demons and Satan. So that stuff will operate on the flesh level. So you can't assign everything to demons. In fact, if they weren't even around, the flesh would be enough to carry on just about everything we experience in this human realm of sin and evil. Now, on the other hand, 
There are some people who say the very opposite. They say, oh, demons can't bother Christians. I mean, uh, they say uh, the Holy Spirit and demons can't be in the same place. And so since we have the Holy Spirit and since we have the power of Christ to overshadow us, uh, demons are not a problem. Uh, they just, they're not a problem for us. We don't need to pay any attention to that. We don't need to be concerned about that. Well, that's not true either. Do you know that God even uses Satan sometimes to, to affect his own purposes with people who name his name? Sure he does. God will even use demons sometimes. Let me give you some illustrations, all right? Get your Bible. Let's go back to the book of Job. That's a good place to start because it's really the first illustration of this. God is in charge of Satan. You have to understand that. He may be prince of the power of the air and he may be prince of the world, but he's not king. And he is subject to God. And in Job chapter 1, it says there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And look at this guy. The man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. That's the all-time good guy. He lived in the patriarchal period, the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he was just a good man. He was living in a, in a land called us, and uh, somehow God had communicated to him, and he'd come to know the true God. He was blameless, upright, feared God, and turned away from evil. This is a good man. You wouldn't think this is a guy who's going to have any problems with demons. He's not really having much problem with the flesh. And he had seven sons and three daughters, ten kids. He really was wealthy. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. This is the, this is the head guy, the best. And uh, that's the man you'd think wouldn't have a problem. But look at verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Here come a group of, uh, of angels, probably fallen angels, who were created by God and in that sense were the sons of God, in the creative sense, just like all men are sons of God creatively. And so Satan comes into the presence of God and the Lord says to Satan, from where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Well, what is he doing? Well, what are, you mean Satan's roaming around the earth? Yeah, he does. Satan roams around this earth all the time. Say, what's he doing roaming around the earth? Looking for someone to what? Devour. Sure. To consume. Somebody, namely, who uh, is identified with God, if, if he can find somebody. See, he doesn't need to go around consuming, dissipating, unregenerate people. No. What he wants to do is consume the people who are identified with God. Because that discredits God. And that messes with God's kingdom and God's purpose, he thinks. So he says, I've just been, you know, roaming around the earth and walking around. And he didn't say, like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And the Lord said, are you looking for somebody to chew? How about Job? Try devouring him. There's nobody like him. Blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. And then Satan has this little dialogue and God says, all right, Satan, go after him. Just try to chew on Job. See how successful you are. He doesn't go down very easily. You'll have a tough time swallowing him. Put forth your hand. Verse 11. Touch everything he's got. And he'll curse you to the face, Satan says. God, the only reason that man serves you is because he has so much. I mean, the guy's got ten kids and all this fortune and he's the, he's the most significant man in the East. That's why he serves you, because of all that good stuff you've done for him. So the Lord says, all right. 
I'll take it all away from him. Takes away his family, his family dies, loses everything he owns, gets boils all over his body. This guy was a wealthy man. I mean, he was so wealthy, he washed his steps with butter. And he was stripped of nothing. Now, what's the point? The point is, God actually sent Satan to work on Job. Now, let me tell you something. As a believer, you're not impervious to that. There may be a time in the plan and the economy of God when Satan himself is dispatched to work on you. Because God has a purpose. Chapters, chapter 2 goes into this dialogue a little further. Then in chapters 3 to 10, you get Job's sorrow. I mean, the guy just broken hearted. He's just crushed. I mean, how would you feel if you lost everything, including the people you love the most? The only person God didn't kill was his wife, and she was a pain. She kept saying, why don't you curse God and die? And he would say, be quiet. You know, uh, he probably wished a lot of times, Lord, take her and give me back the rest. I'll be a happy man. You know. But Job was a sad man. Chapter 6 indicates his sadness all the way through chapter 10. He's just an absolutely broken hearted man. In verse 1 of chapter 10, he finally says, I, I hate my own life. I hate my life. I'll give full vent to my complaint. I'll speak in the bitterness of my soul. I'll say to God, don't condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. What are you doing? He's really a sad guy. You say, what was God trying to do? Why did God turn Satan loose on Job? Well, several reasons. Reason number one. To prove to Satan the strength of God's salvation grace. To prove to Satan that once a man belonged to God, Satan could never get him to reject his faith. Okay? No matter what he did, no matter what went wrong, once that man belonged to God and was given saving trust in God, that could never be violated. Secondly, to teach Job to trust God through the hard times and to prove him to be a man of great strength. It was for God's benefit to make a point to Satan and for Job's benefit to make him a stronger man. Look at Matthew 4. This is even more surprising. Matthew chapter 4. We'll go from Job to Jesus. This could be shocking if we didn't understand the issue here. If you think you're impervious to Satan, you better guess again. Job wasn't, and he was the best man alive at his time. But look at Jesus, Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. This is the Holy Spirit leading Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, into the wilderness. Why? To be tempted by whom? The devil. Can you believe that? God actually led the perfect Son of God into conflict with the devil. He had his purposes. You remember the devil came to him and tempted him three times? Jesus was victorious over each of those temptations, and he made his point. God was proving the character of Christ. He was proving that he was impeccable, sinless, flawless. 
And he was showing Satan again that here was another one far greater than Job who was impervious to any ultimate God's look at the 12 takes us into the story of Paul. You know, Paul, uh, Paul was not only a gifted person, but he was a privileged person. That is to say that God had given him some tremendous privileges. God had just, well, I, I think that the supreme privileges were that, that God let him three times see Jesus. Three visions of Christ. Three times he had seen the risen Christ. That's a remarkable thing. And because of these visions, because of these really incredible experiences that God had given him, I mean, he, he saw him on the Damascus Road, and he saw him another time, and then he was caught up into paradise, and, and he saw him there. And he says, you know, because of all these revelations, I might be too proud. So, look at verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Isn't that interesting? God sent him a thorn in the flesh. You say, what was it? I don't know. I think it was some kind of physical malady. Something that had to do with some eye disease that he had contacted somewhere along the line. And that's why he said, I write with large letters, because he had a vision problem. Some people think it's some kind of malarial infection. It isn't important for us at this point to dig into all of that. What is important is that what came upon Paul was a disability, a physical infirmity that was a messenger from Satan intended to slap him around. Why? To keep him what? What's the word? Humble. Keep him humble. And sometimes the Lord may send Satan just to slap you around to keep you humble. It's amazing, isn't it? Let's go to another person, Luke 22. In Luke 22, verse 31, this is really fascinating. Jesus says to Peter, and he calls him Simon, he always called him by his old name when he was acting like his old self. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. You know, Satan has to go get permission to do this. He had to get permission to go for Job. He had to get permission to go for Jesus. He had to get permission to go for Paul. God sent Satan as a messenger with a thorn. And he had to go to get permission to go after Peter. So anytime you are ever assaulted by Satan for some purpose that God has in mind, it is with the permission of God. And Satan always functions confined by that permission. So he says, Satan has, he's asked permission to sift you like wheat, to put you through a difficult trial to purify you. Sifting wheat, they would throw that wheat in the air and the breeze would blow away the chaff and only the kernel would fall back into the basket. And so it was a purifying process. And he's saying, Satan wants to put you through tribulation and trouble 
to sift you and see if there's anything real there. See if anything falls back down. You see, Satan is the slanderer. That's diabolos, devil. He's the slanderer. He is the accuser of the brethren. He's always going to God and saying, they don't really believe in you. They're phony. If I go after them, they'll deny the faith. They'll reject you. They'll turn their back on you. And they never do. Job didn't. Paul didn't. Now, Peter had a momentary denial, but he was restored. And Jesus says in verse 32, look at it, Luke 22, 32, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And it didn't fail. He had a momentary lapse, but his faith didn't fail. And again, Satan was trying to prove to God that he was more powerful than God. He always wants that from the very start. What did Satan say? I'll be like the Most High. I'll ascend to the Most High place. I, I will have as much power as he has. And so Satan wants to go after Job and show that he can throw over God's power and take Job. He wants to go after Jesus and show he can throw over God's power and take Jesus. He wants to go over and take Paul. He wants to go take Peter away from Christ. And so God says, have at it. Have at it. If their faith is real, it's invincible. It's invincible. There may be times in your life and mine when God allows Satan to come against us. We may not know it. Job didn't know it. Job didn't know what was going on. Job had no clue what was going on. Peter wouldn't have known it either if Jesus hadn't said to him, Satan is, is after you. Paul wouldn't have known it unless God revealed it to him that this was a messenger from Satan. You may not necessarily know it, but God may be putting you through a process which is, now mark this one, which is intended to do very little more than make a point to Satan. And is really on a level that is way above you. You see, the real issue with Job was not to strengthen Job. That was secondary. It did do that. The real issue was to make a point to Satan at the highest level of spiritual conflict between God and Satan. There may be times when we get thrown into a, a context where Satan is after us and the point is something going on between God and Satan and we're only incidental to making God's point. Look at Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. This is a fascinating thing. Here's this little church in Smyrna which is a city in Asia Minor. And this little church, it's a good church. So the, the Lord Jesus writes to the church at Smyrna, identifies himself as the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. That's Christ. And this is what he says. I know your tribulation. I know what you're going through in this town. I know your poverty, but you're rich spiritually. And I know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I know you're going through tribulation. I know you're going through poverty. I know you're being blasphemed by some who represent themselves as those of God and they are of Satan. Then verse 10, watch this. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. Now, why is he going to let him do that? I don't know. But God was going to allow Satan to come into Smyrna and through the instrumentation of human means, capture some of these people, throw them in prison. And they would be tested. And they would have tribulation. Ten days may be literal. It may be figurative for a brief period of time. But if you're faithful till death, I'll give you the crown of life. So Satan sometimes comes for some divine purpose on a, on a divine level. Sometimes he comes to test us. 
God says, I want you to go after that person to test them, to test the reality of their faith. And we go through the test. And when we're done, like Job, we're stronger than ever. Look at Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, and the fifth seal, underneath the altar of the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. Here are some people in the tribulation time who have been literally martyred, and their souls cry out, verse 10, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? What's happening? Satan, during the time of the tribulation, is just moving in the earth. And all kinds of devastation and disaster is happening to believers. Tribulation saints, we call them. And they get martyred. They're massacred by the satanic enterprise. And they're under the altar saying, Lord, how long is this going to go on? Are you going to let us be killed by your enemy? How long are you going to tolerate that? So... It could even come to the fact that God allows Christians to be martyred. I mean, think of those guys down in the Alka jungle. Five of them were martyred on the beach. Uh, that was certainly some kind of satanic enterprise. Did God allow it? Of course he allowed it. Did he have a purpose? Of course he had a purpose. So, it's very important to understand, this is the point, that God will allow Satan sometimes to get very involved in our lives for positive purposes. Positive purposes on the highest level between God and Satan and positive purposes in our own life. Second, God sometimes allows Satan and his demons to get involved in our lives for negative purposes, which have an ultimate positive end. We could say the first set of purposes prove our genuineness. The second set punish our sinfulness. Sometimes God will use Satan to inflict us with chastening or punishment. Let me show you some illustrations of this. Fascinating. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Saul is an illustration. He, of course, was associated with the people of God. He was king. So naturally, he was somebody Satan wanted to devour. He wanted to find him and chew him up and spit him out in little pieces. That would discredit God, that would mock God's power, that would mock God's kingdom, that would mock God's people. That would be a real coup for Satan. You know what? God let him do it. Why? Because Saul deserved to be punished. 1 Samuel 16, verse 12. David comes in. And David, he was ruddy, beautiful eyes handsome appearance and the Lord said anoint him this is he that's the guy I want to be king handsome beautiful eyes ruddy complexion masculine great musician had it all what happens verse 13 Samuel took the horn of oil anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward that was the special coming of the Spirit of God for a unique task of leadership. And what happened in verse 14? Immediately, the Spirit of the Lord left Saul. Left him. He was no longer God's anointed leader. And an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. 
And Saul's servants then said to him, Behold, now an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. An evil spirit from God? That's right. There are times when God dispatches an evil spirit not to test, but to terrorize. Not to make some divine point, but to punish and chasten some unfaithful person. You say, well, how did he get in this position? I'll tell you how. After David was selected king, Saul was so jealous, his jealousy turned to what emotion? What does jealousy turn to? Anger. And once he got angry, he was wide open to demon possession. And God allowed that demon to come in and access his sinful heart. Any sin opens the door. Any sin gives place to Satan. Any sin gives access to Satan. That's why you have to constantly be covered with the breastplate of righteousness. Because as soon as there's unrighteousness, access is made available. And because of his jealousy and his anger toward David, he was opened. And that evil spirit seized control of him and he became a wicked man. He began to make rash judgments, and he was never too smart to start with. He began to make bad decisions. Get this, he killed his own son for eating honey. He despised Samuel's spiritual leadership. He became proud, dictatorial, and then he invaded the priestly office, which was the kiss of death. He became a very wicked man when controlled by this evil spirit. And this was his punishment. To let him go to the depths of his sin under the control of this demon. He was driven by anger. First Samuel 18.8, he was so angry. It says Saul became very angry. When they were, the women were all singing, Saul has slain his thousands and David is ten thousand. He was furious about this. And he says, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Sounds like a little kid. And then he spent the rest of his time trying to do what to David? Trying to kill him. He couldn't deal with it. Throwing spear, David's in there playing his harp, you know, playing his harp with his hand as usual. And the spear was in Saul's hand, you know, he was just kind of polishing his spear. And whoosh, he says, I'll pin David to the wall. David was not only ruddy, handsome, beautiful, he was quick. And it's a good thing. Because he could never pin him. He was driven by this uncontrollable hatred and jealousy. Terrorized by a demon. Sad story. He got worse. He became insane. He became a mass murderer. Did you hear that? Saul was a mass murderer. He massacred a whole group of priests. He was stripped naked, stark naked, humiliated in public as an insane person. Then he went into the occult, consulted a medium, and ultimately committed suicide. You want me to chronicle for you the behavior of a demon-controlled person? Try this on for size. A certain kind of insanity, a certain kind of sexual perversion and lewdness, involvement in the occult, mass murder, and suicide. Does that sound familiar? Demons can generate that kind of stuff. 
And God let it happen because in the sovereignty of God, Saul had gone to the place where in naming the name of God, he had become a blasphemer to God, and God dealt with him by letting him be turned over to Satan for all of this. Unbelievable. Look at John for a moment, chapter 13. And we meet another individual here who ranks with people who have names that no one ever uses. This is Judas. In John 13, 27, they're sitting at the Last Supper and Judas is there. And Jesus gives Judas this little bit of food. He is called in verse 26, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. He is Judas, the son of Simon from the village of Cariath, which makes him a non-Galilean. So he never really was a part of the group. And after the morsel he had taken, look at this, verse 27, Satan entered into him. Did God allow it? Sure. Judas had the greatest opportunity of any man who ever lived in the history of the world. He was called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. He was drawn into the inner circle of intimacy with Christ. He spent three years walking and talking with Jesus. He saw all his miracles, heard everything he said. He saw the quality and character of his life. It was all exposed to him. He was even given the promise that he would reign over one of the ten, uh, 12 tribes of Israel. It was an amazing opportunity this man had. But this man never did anything but outwardly identify with Jesus Christ. And he became an embarrassment and a blasphemer of Christ because his heart was never right. And he did what he did to get the money because he was a thief and he was driven by greed. And so the Lord said, it's time for you to be punished for your sin. And he literally turned him over to Satan. Satan moved into his life. And what was the end result? That Judas went out and not only betrayed Jesus Christ, but was so filled with remorse, he went out and tried to hang himself. He couldn't even do that well. The rope broke. He fell down and smashed his guts out on a bunch of rocks in a, in a field that was later purchased called a field of blood and turned into a cemetery. That's Judas. And it all happened because he was turned over to Satan. There are times when God will turn over someone to Satan who names his name and becomes an embarrassment and a blasphemy to him. Look at Acts chapter 5. Now we'll move right into the church. In Acts chapter 5, in verse 1, there was a certain man named Ananias. This is another guy that nobody gets named after. And his wife, Sapphira, nor does any girl get named that. And they sold a piece of property. That's an innocent thing, right? They had a piece of property, they sold it. But they kept back some of the price he did for himself with his wife's full knowledge. You say, well, so what? Well, the, the implication here is that they had covenanted with God to give him the full price that they received. They had made some kind of promise to the Lord that when we sell this property, we're going to give it all to you. God's not happy with people who lie. They lied. They saw the money and they said, oh, man, look at all this money we got. Let's just give some of it to God. Right? We won't give it all. We said we would, but, ah, you know, he'll, he'll understand. We'll give him some. We'll satisfy him. So they kept back some. And verse 2 says they brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. That's how they took the offering in those days. They just put the money at the apostles' feet. Peter says to him, Ananias, he was probably waiting to hear, oh, you've done so well, my friend. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But Peter was under the influence of the Holy Spirit, so he had inside knowledge. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? 
to lie to the Holy Spirit. Ooh. This is a believer in the church who, who lied to the Holy Spirit. And that lie was generated by who? Satan. Because Satan had filled his heart. Can Satan get into the heart of a believer? He did here. Why has Satan filled your heart? Lie to the Holy Spirit. What sin opened the door and gave him access and made you keep back some of the peace of the land? While it was unsold, it was yours. You didn't have to sell it. But after it was sold, it wasn't under your control. You promised it to God. Why have you conceived this deed in your heart? You've lied not to men, but to God. And what happened to Ananias on the spot? He dropped dead. Killed in the front of the church during the offering time. And his wife later comes in and says, what happened? And she dropped dead. Satan filled his heart. If you open the door, there's no reason to assume that Satan can't move in. Even in your life as a believer. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 1, the Corinthian church uh, had a lot of problems. In fact, we used to call them the cruddy Corinthians. You name it and they did it. It is actually reported, he says, in 1 Corinthians 5.1, it is reported there is immorality among you. Immorality in the church. Sexual immorality. And, and the kind of immorality that doesn't even exist among the Gentiles or the pagans. Namely, that someone is having a sexual relationship with his father's wife, which is another way of saying his what? His mother. Now, it's perhaps likely that he has in mind his stepmother, but either his mother or his stepmother, in either case it's incestuous to be sleeping with the same woman your father sleeps with, and even unthinkable if it's your own mother. He says, this is not something abnormal. Apparently, you've accepted it, and it's common report that some guy in your church is sleeping with his mother. And you, instead of doing something about it, verse 2, became arrogant. And you haven't mourned about this. And you haven't removed this from your midst. You haven't done anything about it. So I'm going to do something about it. Verse 5, God says, what am I going to do? I'm going to... Deliver this one to Satan. I'm going to turn him over to Satan. And what's Satan going to do? Destroy his flesh. Oh, would Satan ever love to get a church member and give him AIDS? Oh, he'd love that. He'd love to get a pastor and give him AIDS. Because of his dissolute lifestyle. That's a reproach on the name of Christ. That embarrasses the kingdom so he wants to find this kind of guy, expose him, and give him AIDS, and make him a, an embarrassment and a desecration who once named the name of Christ and may still do that. Graciously, verse 5 also says his spirit will be saved, which indicates to me that it's likely he was a Christian. His spirit will be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, but his flesh is going to be destroyed. And I will tell you, folks, there are probably going to be many times in the future when there are going to be people in churches who, given over to immorality, are going to literally be destroyed by venereal disease. In those days, there was a lot more devastation because medicine was more primitive. There are going to be people who die in the devastating effects of immorality, and they're under the very 
primary care of Satan to whom God has given them. Their soul may be saved, but they're under Satan's devastating influence. So, there are times when God may turn us over to Satan for a chastening, punishing work to drive us to the destruction that our sin has dictated. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Verse 19. Here we come to the church of Thyatira. Smyrna was a good church. Thyatira wasn't. Son of God, when he talks to them, he doesn't talk to them as the first and the last, the one who is dead and is now alive. He talks to them as the God who has the eyes of the flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. He's not talking to them as their, as their life giver. He's talking to them as their judge. He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith and service and perseverance and your deeds of later greater than at first, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. This woman teaching and leading my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality, fornication, and they eat things sacrificed to idols. You tolerate a woman who is leading people into sexual immorality and idolatry. And I gave her time to repent. She doesn't want to repent of her immorality. Verse 22, I'll cast her on in a bed. She wants to go to bed. I'll put her in a bed. All right. She likes bed. I'll give her a bed. It won't be a bed of sex. It'll be a bed of sickness. And those who commit adultery, I'll throw in there with her in her bed. She wants somebody in bed with her, I'll throw some people in bed with her. And they'll stay that in that bed of tribulation until they repent. And I'll kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I'll give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say this to the rest of you in Thyatira who don't hold this teaching and who have not known the deep things of Satan. I place no burden on you. And so what he's saying is these people living in this way were into the deep things of Satan. You want the deep things of Satan? You want Satan's bed? I'll put you in Satan's bed, all right. You'll be in a bed of tribulation. That's where you'll be. So there are times, again, when God takes believers, people who name his name, people who are in his church, and they want their sin. I'll give them their sin, all right. I'll throw them in Satan's depths. And he can do his thing to them. And Satan wants to destroy them and devour them and chew them up because he wants to discredit the work of God. And that's why he's after people who name the name of Christ, whether they're real Christians or not. One final illustration. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says to Timothy, and Timothy's in Ephesus here, trying to straighten this church out. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight. He says, Timothy, now I want you to war the spiritual war. Timothy's in Ephesus fighting the spiritual war. I want you to fight the good fight. I want you to war the spiritual war. Keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Then he says this. The people who have wrecked the faith are people like Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered over to Satan, so they may be taught not to blaspheme. 
In this case, their deliverance to Satan was remedial. It didn't end in their destruction. It had its purpose of instruction, not destruction. Not to destroy them, but to teach them. We don't know what Hymenaeus and Alexander were doing, but obviously they were doing something that was, a blasphemous, was blasphemous to God. They were very likely pastors and elders in that church, and Paul himself had to remove them. He couldn't let Timothy do it. They were too high-ranking and too highly esteemed. It would take an apostle to deal with them. So he said, I myself have turned them over to Satan, and they being turned over to Satan will experience the full blasts of Satan's effort like a roaring lion to devour them. And in the process of being attempted to be devoured by Satan, they're going to learn the error of blasphemy. So it was remedial. So what am I saying? There's a spiritual war out there. And don't you think for a minute that everything that happens in your life is demons. It isn't. But don't you think, on the other hand, that Satan and his hosts don't have access to you? Sometimes they do. And always it is within God's framework. God allows it. God allows it. He may allow it for some holy purpose way beyond you between himself and, and Satan. He may allow it to strengthen you, to prove you, to make you better, to give you a clearer vision of him as you go through the tribulation, to purge you and refine you. He may allow it to chasten you, to destroy your physical life even, taking you out of the world, though your spirit will be saved. And he may allow it to teach you a lesson so that you can come back and help other people like Peter and like Hymenaeus and Alexander who needed to learn some things about how to live and how to rightly represent God. So young people, the bottom line is, hey, we do have exposure to Satan. Make sure that if Satan's working on you, it's within the framework of God's holy purpose and that it has a holy positive purpose that it's not God turning you over to Him because you've given access. Now, only one question really remains. Okay, then if we can be exposed to Satan, and we can be exposed to his demons, and I think any time you see Satan here that we've talked in these passages, we would include his demons being able to do the same kinds of things. So if we can be exposed to them, and we can, we wrestle against not flesh and blood, but principalities, powers, and all of these demon hosts, says Ephesians 6:12. If we can be exposed to all of that, the question then immediately comes, how do we fight? Right? Do we just say, oh, I've been turned over to Satan, that's it? Can we fight back? The answer is yes. The question is how? We don't have time to deal with that. Next time. How to win the spiritual warfare, okay?